episode number 28, Beth Cates. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. Heads to half. Heads out. Letting cues one through ten. And welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your host, Michael Cruz. In this episode, I get to the last, finally, eh, of my Shaw Festival interviews that I did last summer in 2015, this time with designer Beth Cates. I met with Beth in the beautiful backyard of what had to be the best of Shaw housing last May. I think they were staying at a uh, an off-season bed and breakfast. While she and her work and life partner, Ben Chason, were designing projections and video for Pygmalion and Light Up the Sky. Plans are in the works to return to Shaw and get down to Stratford this year to talk with Canada's top designers so I can replenish my recording stock, and I can't wait for that to happen. I'm also interviewing Pat Flood coming up in the next couple weeks uh, from Guelph and trying to get Michael Levine on the show in April. I think that's going to work out. So exciting things are happening here at the Title Block. And I want to thank those of you who have decided to support the show. Thank you so much on Patreon.com. And encourage the rest of you to consider helping out with a couple of bucks an episode. It'll really help. Uh, to ensure that we continue to bring you these types of high-quality interviews and to ensure that special presentations of events like The Bellows continue to be archived. Last week, in fact, I recorded what turned out to be a really interesting discussion about the pitfalls of doing your taxes as a theatre artist. Last week, I recorded what turned out to be a really interesting discussion about the pitfalls of doing your taxes as a theatre artist, uh, and I'm going to work really hard to get that to you before the filing date Uh, deadline in April, probably, in fact, by the end of March. Uh, From our discussion on Monday, it sounds like taxes are one of those things that theater artists fret over a lot. It generates a lot of anxiety. I know that I had a lot of anxiety about it, and, uh, and the discussion is not one to miss. And remember that we are broadcasting those discussions live via Periscope on the web. And if you don't know what that is, then please go to thetitleblock.com to find out how you can join us in April for the next episode of The Bellows. Uh, TheTitleBlock.com is also the place where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and picks that will give you some context for the discussions we have here. Uh, There's a portfolio page uh, as well that has some work by leading Canadian designers. So that's all for me. Uh, All done. Stop chattering. Uh, Now I hope you enjoy my conversation with designer Beth Cates. Beth Cates, welcome to the Title Block. Thank you. We are here in lovely downtown Niagara on the Lake. Not in the office. We're outside, so we can hear the twittering of the birds and the rustling mm-hmm. of the squirrels and the plotting of the raccoons. <laughs> and we have a gopher in our backyard. No way. That's Don't awesome. Forget. Don't forget the gopher. Yes, we have the gopher. Don't forget the gopher. <laughs> and Beth's young son Aaron is here. He's going to be twittering around, so we'll, you'll hear him in the background playing about. Uh, and we're going to talk to Beth today about her career as a lighting designer, set designer, and uh, more specifically in regards to the Shaw Festival this year, as a video uh, and projection designer. Mm-hmm. So first, let's start about where you trained. Uh, you did traditional theater uh, training, or where did you start? I did not. I have uh, no post-secondary education. Um, so I trained by doing shows. And um, 
uh, I went to an arts high school, which I think is part of the grounding. My origin story, if you want to call it that, starts way back when I was put into an art class at the age of seven. Does it involve a radioactive spider? It does. (laughs) I actually have superpowers. They're just not very good ones because I work in theater, so I like... You know, I can't stop light. That's right. I, I can't stretch cable. I can't do any useful. I can climb buildings, though. So, Fantastic. yeah, so it's helpful. So sorry, you were put um, into so a class. Right? I was put into an art class um, with, a, with an artist as the teacher uh, when I was seven. And that became the the place where my eye was developed, where I learned uh, an, an incredible amount of art history by the time I was 13 because that was part of our training like we were receiving as kids we were receiving a really thorough education in arts in the fine arts um, so by the time I got to high school I went to an, an, a, an arts high school in Unionville just outside of Toronto uh, that a lot of really amazing people like Adam Brazier and Tracy Michaelidis and Salvatore Antonio. Yeah, I went to nursery school. I did go to nursery school. Durham Mills Public or uh, Durham Mills Nursery School. And Marsha Berger was my nursery school teacher. And she, if we get into mentor, I think she started it all. Really. Um, so, so by the time I got into high school, I had been seriously studying art for seven years at that point and I got in as a visual arts major and had a style and an aesthetic already at that point because we had been working on on that on finding who our artist was inside and um, that didn't jive with the program necessarily and it was a program that was by grade 10 it, it became actually quite difficult for me because I was still studying. Uh, By that point, I was also teaching younger children. I was in a life drawing class. Like I was, I was ahead in terms of the training than where this program was. And, and so I, in grade 10, there was, there was a tipping point too with a teacher and Aaron's going to go to baseball school. Just, he's just let everyone know. It's good to hear on the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and T-ball school. So we, so I decided on a whim, sort of, to re-audition for the theater program, and uh, and got in, in the middle of grade ten. So I kind of missed some fundamental stuff in that program, but that was, I found my place in school, and we were really, really lucky to have a uh, a theater, a five hundred seat proscenium house beside our school and that was where we did the major musical every year and that was where we did co-op so I did a lot of learning there and found you know under Bonnie Armstrong who I think is still there um, she was the technical director at that point and she kind of took all the co-op students who were particularly the ones who are really interested under her wing and uh, and really gave us our education in terms of tech and and design and uh and at the same time i started for working working for rock bands that's, um, a, that's a bit of a, a jump it was a bit of, of a jump yeah from the theater. yeah um 
but it was it connected i mean music is always connected pretty deeply for me um so my best friend was uh in a band and i kind of went and hung out and then decided to teach myself how to use the lighting boards at the different clubs and and that just kind of begot itself and I ended up working for a whole bunch of bands uh along the way in the, and then designed my first professional dance show at 16 um and that started a relationship with that little it was a little fledgling dance company of which there were many of in the in the late 80s early 90s in Toronto and did a lot of that and so by the time I graduated high school it it just felt more appropriate to continue on that path and I did I went to the Banff Center which is where I met Ben uh, in 98 and I was there as both a work study and a designer it was a work study under Linda Babbins who is a great lighting designer and and then I did all the little designs in the club downstairs in the basement which was a hoot and but that's kind of the extent. I just kept working. I did a couple of assistants positions, but not a lot of that. Um, and that's in part because of something Andrea Lundy said to me once upon a time that she never went the assistant route um, for a bunch of personal reasons. And one was that she just saw people getting stuck in there in those roles as assistant and not being able to move forward because it's hard. What we do is hard. Uh, yeah, and it's certainly, I know that uh, a couple people who had come down to the Shaw, I won't name any names, but it, 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 if the pay is just enough, it's really easy to enter that uh, enter that environment and then want to stay there mm-hmm. because oh, it's such sure. an enjoyable place it's to a, be, right? Absolutely. Uh, so it's almost important to, I, mean, I don't want to, we should pay assistance enough, absolutely. <laughs> but there should be a moment where you kind of sour the milk and go, you know, you're. It's time for you to get out there and start doing, do, you know, doing, doing your own work. stuff. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it, the the assistantships that I did, one was on Geometry of Miracles with Robert Lepage and Eric Folk, and that was great. And but yeah, I, I stayed away from that. So that's great. So it's not unusual as well. I mean, in, if it's going to work anywhere. Um, certainly in theater, it's it's perfectly legitimate, obviously, to not have to worry about going to secondary. I think so, yeah. You know, I, doing secondary school education to get that kind of training. I mean, as long as you get the art history and all that stuff, you can do auto as an autodidact as well and absolutely. get through experience. So yeah. It's very valuable. Well, I think so, and I think there the opportunities, you know, when you like anything you go to school for it and you learn it you learn it by book and you learn it maybe by experience in the school but it's still not the real world and I mean as theater designers as any professional we're learning all the time too you learn from each new show you discover a new technique or a new way of doing things and um and when you're first out of school you have to do all that unlearning too um no I think the only time I've ever regretted it or the only time I've ever thought about oh it would be good to have a degree is looking at educational positions and looking at wanting to teach and that has started to become quite problematic it's in certain higher level institutions want you to have those letters but yeah 
after the Banff Center, which is a great place to get your chops. Oh, it's so great. Um, where did you, what was your first professional design uh, outside, like after you had sort of fleshed out your training? After the Banff Center? Oh, that's a good question. The first one, I did a whole bunch of like little dance shows. Um, again, because dance was pretty awesome at that point. I also came back from the BAMP Center ready to leave Toronto because I had done a lot of the little dance companies and uh, shows in places that are now condos on Spadina. And uh, so I came back ready to leave. So I actually moved to Montreal shortly after coming back from the BAMP Center, which is where Ben and I started our relationship in earnest. And um uh so yeah the one that comes to mind was actually a show called music for contortionist which has a connection to the shaw festival yeah that's right that was that was done here as a as a studio show it was Yeah. yeah and it was done as a full production at um at Tarragon Theater in the backspace. And Ida Holmes directed it, and Nora McClelland was in it, and Ginny Jacinto was the was the contortionist, and uh, Evan Turner did the music. So there was a really strong connection with the Shaw Festival. I never got to see it out here, uh, but I designed the lighting for it in Toronto. And that was that was part of the conversation that I had with Andrea Lundy way, way back. And she connected Ida and I and Ida lived in Montreal at the same time too. So I think it all just kind of was a nice little package. But that's the one that sticks out as the first post Banff show. Yeah. And uh, were there any shows along the way that you thought were the, uh, your sort of keynote, like you, you did the show and went, this is what, I should be doing like this is the uh, it was an important show for your career or was it an important show for you to figure out your taste as a designer oh that's a great question music for contortionist mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. for sure bigger than jesus is another one and bigger than jesus is kind of a touchstone too as far as video and the the integration and what how we learn as video designers and and what we had to do as video designers. Can you describe that process for me? Was it a uh, was it the first time you'd used a video in a production? Or? No, no, no. I I've used video or some form of projection. I think from the very beginning. Right. Um, a lot of those dance shows had whether they were TVs or they were actigraphic slide projectors or it was the first complex and complex use of video and use of live cameras that was that was what set it apart from from anything else for sure yeah that certainly sounds like um like i we i mean as a design as a letting designer you're often called on to do in, inst- um incidental projection stuff mm-hmm. in the show but to have it a part of your uh your kit uh, is rare for any specific designer, or at least it had been in the past. Now, obviously, it's a it's becoming a much bigger component of many shows. But it sounds like that was something that was there from the beginning from you, right? That was something that you, you think about as, yeah. as an easy tool to bring into the Absolutely, the and I think that connects back to my training as a visual artist. And being able, or 
approaching things as a whole picture. And so seeing the value of that picture, it's not just wallpaper. It's not just a scenic addition. It's not just something to transition. It can actually help you tell the story mm-hmm. that you're trying to tell. And while we're on it, I mean, Bigger Than Jesus was a really successful show. Yeah. Uh, toured all over the place. Mm-hmm. Started in Toronto. Was it Daniel Brooks? No, Daniel Brooks. Daniel Brooks. It. And so it went to Edinburgh. It went all over the place, right? It did. Uh, describe the show and tell us what the video component was like in it. Right? Sure. Just, just, give, just give us a background of the synopsis, first of all. Sure. Uh, yes, so Bigger Than Jesus, which was created by, by Rick Miller, Daniel Brooks, Ben Chason, and myself, and was performed by Rick Miller, was originally uh, produced at the Manitoba Theatre Centre in Winnipeg, and uh, and a necessary angel picked up the ball, and that's how we got around the world. We the, the show, and I think the reason why it's possibly unique or an exception, um, the show was created from the ground up with the idea that video was an important part. We had all the tools, or we had many of the tools as they were developing the script. So we would develop design ideas. They would then do something that was inspired by that in terms of the script and the story. And they'd bring that to us, and then we'd do something more. And so it was this, like, it was this layering of text, story, image we knew that we were going to use live camera in it we knew that was a very particular language and that's where Daniel's rigor of where the audience's eye is looking and how to tell a story with all the different materials was incredibly valuable Um, and we were making a lot of stuff up as we went and this was this was in 2003 so we were also at the beginning of the digital revolution um so a lot of the equipment that we would have made things a lot easier didn't exist yet so we were using analog cameras and uh analog switchers and and just kind of matrix matrixing stuff together making stuff up as we went we had to educate ourselves as we went so they'd come up with an idea and we go great that's a great idea now we'll go figure out how to do it we'd figure out how to do it or figure out how to do it better or differently bring that back to them and and discuss uh but i think the the so the show itself is a one one person show which meant too that there was a way we had this great access to a person as camera operator too. And so he was able to interact with the technology in a way that brought it alive, that it wasn't, it wasn't inert and it wasn't stagnant and it, it had a life of its own because he gave it a lot of life and was able to interact with it. And so is in terms of an integrated show, uh, it was very simple, but all the pieces belonged. Yeah, we, I think we uh, we touched on that in August when we spoke last time. Where, um, in in the cases where video becomes a part of the storytelling and is a central part of the storytelling in the language, the visual language of the piece, rather than trying to make up for stuff that you're leaving mm-hmm. out, um, it makes it, it makes a much better visual element, right? It makes it means integrated into the storytelling. Is really important. Um, now after that, I mean, that was, that sounds like, uh, it sounds like a show that would probably put you on the map as far as 
hey, we're doing a show with video. Oh, go call Ben and Beth like that. Is that what happened afterwards? I think so. Yeah, I think that show has kind of become our calling card or has been our calling card. Because in part, too, a lot of people saw it. It crossed the country a couple of times and we toured with it as well. So we were able to meet a lot of people along the way. But yeah, I think that's the show too that happened at a point where video was was started to be in everything as well. It showed up everywhere. Yeah, that was the next question I had. Like if it, if it was a, that a successful show and popular, then people are going to want to use those tools for their own mm-hmm. purposes, right? Mm-hmm. What changed? So so you're using all these analog equipment. So what, what has come into play that has made the job easier? Like what kind of tools? We'll touch on the architecture specifically, but what changed now to replace those things that make it much easier? And is it easy enough for people to incorporate um, at a low cost? And mm. <laughs> Yeah, I know we had that discussion. <laughs> the low too. cost discussion. Yeah. Things are cheaper, for sure. Computers are bigger and faster, and you can render quickly, and you can do all kinds of stuff that took a long time before. Uh, cameras are cheaper. Cameras used to be incredibly expensive, and they're, they're less so, and they're a little more flexible because now cameras are intended to speak to computers, whereas before we had to like basically force-feed it to a computer to try to deal with it some sort of interface yeah yeah Yeah, so we so instead of having to go through all those many steps i mean there's still yes i think there's in some ways now there's fewer steps and yet there's more steps The, the technology is so complicated it just seems to be a little more um user friendly and because the digital revolution has kind of has put everything on the digital level, so we're not though we still have to deal with some analog stuff sometimes. We don't have to deal with as much as we were, like we used to run bigger than Jesus off of VHS. Wow. Yeah. So the, all the all the projected sequences that weren't so the stuff that wasn't live camera was on a VHS the very early days and then we went to dvd there was one when we did a workshop in toronto at pasmarai we did it off winamp this is before the mac revolution we played the video (laughs) off of the windows the windows music player when you show off of winamp just gives me the willies (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it was not it, it wasn't pretty but it was the only way at that point we were able to continue to make changes quickly and then not have to burn a dvd like and that's why we went to winamp actually because we were rehearsing and then it was time to do a show and we didn't have time to burn the dvds so it wasn't the most elegant solution but it was what we had available Mm -hmm. at that point and i imagine just like any other kind of new technology once you figure out how to do one thing people wanted to do 10 more things so even though it might be easier now to do the things you were doing in 2003 we don't want to do that anymore. We, no. We, we wanted to do these 16 other things, and that makes it more complex and drives the technology forward. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And because those revolutions that we've all experienced, so we have these, you know, full high-rise movies in our pockets, and and so that's pushed filmmaking. Things have pushed filmmaking, and so now our visual language has changed so much in the last 10 years that the expectations 
from audiences, from directors, from producers, from writers has changed. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your shows down here at the Shaw Festival this year. The first one uh, that's going to be opening is called Pygmalion. Pygmalion. So what is your element? What are you being What are you being asked to do by the uh, by the director and by the rest of the design team? What are you fulfilling? What's your role? Our Our role is we're sort of calling that one the video design and the other one the the projection design. Ah. To, uh, Pygmalion's directed by Peter Hinton and Eo Sharp is the set designer and it's being set contemporary so like today in London this is the story so there's so screens have become a big part of uh, Professor Higgins's lab essentially so he's he still holds the same position but it's a contemporary version of that position um so the idea, and, and in terms of uh, vocal training now, cameras and, and projection and screens are used all the time because you're filming the human head and they use x-rays. And so Peter was really interested in that and in the idea that Higgins would have an iPhone and an iPad and a laptop and another computer and a, a spectrogram analyzer and all of those tools at the ready. So his his space is very technical and very modern. So we're doing a bunch of stuff with with live camera with a spectrogram analyzer, a real time one, while also trying to be artful about it. So there are very real, very sort of benign things like a Skype conversation, all these things that are part of our world, a television flipping through the channels, things like that, that we all interface with every day that are being incorporated for the stage. Uh, instead of a fireplace, he has a, a television right. in the fireplace yeah. so that he can uh, show his his students, his pupils, his, the people he's, he's coaching, um, what they look like all the time, which is, is really interesting. Um, and then there's a... There's a large rear projection screen that's upstage of everything that is really just there to, for us, because of this, the scale of the, of the set design, that will really just be um, artful backgrounds. But things to give it a life because time of, time of day and, and time of season is quite important in the show in tracking the story. So we move, we move from... You know, a late winter afternoon into spring, uh, and it just sort of helps to add a bit of bit of life, mm -hmm. all the way upstage. <laughs> and then there's there. Oh, sorry. Oh no, no go ahead. Sorry. Uh, there's one more. There's one more element, and there's or there's two more elements. There's a a reality TV show that's part of the story, um, and so there's that live camera work that's also happening and then there's this scrim and the scrim comes down all the way downstage and there are these um extraordinary and elaborate entre-acts in the show there are five acts in the show and in between each one there are these lengthy entre-acts that are happening to like incredible pieces of music there's generally some sort of choreographed movement of the set happening upstage that we bear witness to and then we're also telling 
more of the story, more of the contemporary story on the scrim. Um, people doing voice work, people, uh, the queen makes an appearance. Uh, there's a chance for us to be a little more artful and uh, imbue the show with with a different or an, an extension of the sensibility that has that everything else embodies. And do you think that these choices? Uh, I mean, I I think the answer is going to be yes. Obviously, you wouldn't be doing them, but it sounds like the choices are are there to help make the play um, give it impact and relevance to people who are seeing it in a cultural context today that they wouldn't have been in, obviously, when it was originally written, uh, what, 60, 70 years ago, 70? Yes, the twenties. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time ago, 80 years ago now. Um, and, and how, who's Eos doing this, doing this set? How Mm -hmm. much did you have to, um, was there a lot of collaboration between, you guys, there must have been, eh? Like, you guys are really working on two sides of the of the same coin as, as far as the set design and the video design for the show, right? It sounds like you're a giant element of it, right? It's a, Yeah, it's a yeah. huge element. Um, there wasn't an enormous amount of collaboration mm-hmm. on this one. Um, we, we came in... The set was already designed, and the deadlines here are so early... I think the set was already designed. I don't know, actually, from from Peter Eo's point, at what point they decided that they wanted to have video that was perhaps more involved than simply, quote-unquote, simply, you know, having all these contemporary elements. Um, so the collaboration has been a little more recent and less in the development of the, the scenography of it. Uh, which is actually where, like, we prefer the earlier we can be involved, the better. Um, just because then there's a better chance of integration or there's a better chance of a, a different idea. Um, you know, you're, there's obviously technical limitations here. Um, but since we've been part of the the show, so from about October 2014, uh, we've we've been pretty involved in in talking about the different ways to that we can a- achieve what everybody's goal is. And how does your workflow work? So once you come up with an idea, do you do sketches uh, of the stuff uh, either on the computer or, uh, or elsewhere? Do you do storyboard things? Or how do you guys develop the story after you've got the original ideas? Uh, and how does that reflect on your... Like, how do you get that through the pipe, down, down the pipe? Mm. That's a good question. That's different for every show because every show is so different. Like I'm working on another one right now where the video design is going to have to be heavily storyboarded, but that's because we have to pull animation cells to achieve it. Um, with So the workflow, yeah, I would say sketches on the computer for sure. There's a process where... Idea one or attempt one is exactly that, is the like pre-preliminary, what do you think of this idea? And um, and then going into imagination land after that and getting feedback. So there's always a, a few very rough first steps. They, uh, yeah, that then continue down the path. Sometimes we do have to heavily storyboard. This This one is planned but it's not fully storyboarded and what technology are you using to do that kind of illustration is it uh 
After, uh, not After Effects. What's the Adobe? Yeah, is we, it After we use pretty much the whole Adobe suite. Mm -hmm. So After Effects and Photoshop are our go-to tools in order to make the sketches. Uh, we use Final Cut for a lot of stuff as well, or Premiere. Um, with, uh, and then we, I like to assemble storyboards in InDesign. That's my preference. Uh, you can do them in Photoshop, too, if you wanted. But, yeah, I would say After Effects and Photoshop are our two biggest tools, the most important tools. And what about deadlines, just from a practical point of view? So I imagine you have to have, early on, you have to have your tech requirements, like the video plot, done early, right? Yes, generally, yeah. And how, I mean, imagine because it's not, like a lighting plot has a lot of gear on it. The video plot, while it's got, you know, obviously essential elements in the architecture, if you want to move the video projector from spot A to spot B, that's probably not a big deal, is it? Or do you have to really front load your decisions to make sure that that stuff gets done? Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah, front loading is always a good idea because the sooner you figure it out, video is such a chicken and egg uh, tool because you you need the set designer to make some decisions before you can make decisions on your gear, um, and then and then that cycle begins. and And moving a projector is not always easy. And then if you move it, what are the rent? Well, you don't know what the ramifications are. There's lensing and then cabling and then hanging positions and now it has to hang upside down and we don't have the mount for that. And so you really want to do as much homework on that stuff. So it's kind of like doing a lighting plot because you have to do a lot of photometric and geometry kind of work. Um, but you need the set done first. Sometimes you can give your... TD an idea of like it looks like it's going to be 12 projectors and three cameras or and this is what we think the control interface should be and this is how we think it should be cabled there are some projection designers that don't do as much technical work for us for both men and I that feels like it's really an intimate part of the design in in the way that it is a lighting designer too, I'm sure at one point in history there were lighting designers that pointed at the stage and said make it blue over there and purple over there, and someone else did that. You know, it's funny in the UK model, the director was the lighting designer. Oh, and so the director would come and say, "I need some blue light from over here," and then the head electrician would just fulfill their wishes. Right. It's a really different model than the US model, which is where Gene uh, um, Rosenthal. Uh, sort of went, no, 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 we, <laughs> I am the lighting designer. Yeah. I'm the only doing lighting. <laughs> I'm not doing directing. So just talk to me. Hi there. I'm interrupting briefly to thank those eight of you. Yes, eight. <laughs> and I think I know all of you personally who have supported the title block on patreon.com. I'm really enjoying doing the show and I'm not going to stop while I have the time, but it does cost a bit to do the show between equipment and web hosting, not to mention extra mic rentals to ensure that special events like the bellows sound as best as I can make them. So I'm asking that you help out to cover those costs and helping to continue to capture the story of Canadian theater design. Go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. Now, Back to my interview 
with designer Beth Cates. Um, in when you guys collaborate, you and Ben, uh, how do you guys divvy up the work? Uh, is it really, do you guys just do a lot of, does it always cross over and say, I'll do that task, I'll do that task? Or does one do one sort of set of tasks and the other does the other? Uh, it crosses over for sure. Ben has had a little more opportunity to to learn more about After Effects. So he tends to tends to start with that. Whereas I've been working with Photoshop for 20 years now. And so I can, I can Photoshop the heck out of anything. Um and but I, I can do After Effects, too. So, yeah, those those tasks tend to flow. I would say he's heavier on the After Effects and I'm heavier on the Photoshop. Um, and then once it gets into the theater, it really depends there, on how on the nature of the project. Sometimes it makes more sense for him to be the lead. Like Ben is basically the lead designer on Light Up the Sky, which is our second show at Shaw this year. Uh, and that has in part to do with scheduling and in part uh, it just made sense. And Pygmalion is pretty shared, I think. It's almost it's pretty even. We'll see what happens once we get into the theater. Uh, just because I just the nature of our personalities I tend to really like getting into it with directors and Ben really likes getting into it with the computer and so which is great like as a team that's why we work as a team because we have these complementary skills that allow us to then I think it it we do end up being able to do a little more we are two people hopefully we can do more than yes. one person I hope so too <laughs> uh, now in um Certainly in set design and costume design, somebody else is realizing your ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but you guys are pretty much responsible for your own. Uh, oh, yes. Like when you come up with an idea, you go, well, I'm the person who's going to have to do that. So I better not choose something that's too giant because <laughs> I only have this much time. Um, do you ever work with other collaborators? Like do you ever have uh, – I guess you guys don't need to. You've got, you're, you're, you're tech heavy enough. You don't have to bring in somebody to say, could you go figure out the angles and the lensing? And the yeah. gear. All of that we can do ourselves. Yeah. yeah. It, where we start to get into, oh, wouldn't it be nice if uh, is animators, people who are dedicated animators, we can do rudimentary animation, um, but we can't do true animation. So we have worked with, with animators before uh, on a couple of really key things because that always comes back to budget. And so... If our idea gets too big, then we better be able to pay for it out of something. Uh, cinematographers are, would also be nice to work with sometimes. Most of the the video, when we're doing recorded camera work with actors or scenically, a lot of that is pretty simple, very basic. The language of film in theater is so different from the language of film in film. So we, you know, it's generally a locked shot static, right? You need, I need 35 minutes of trees. And so we do that. We'll go shoot 35 minutes of trees. But sometimes we would bring in, we've, we've brought in some people to help with, with that in the past a little bit. But for the most part, it's, it's all us, it's all us. And I guess, uh, so once we... Let's talk about, uh, oh my God, what's the heart show again? The what show? So the, the Moss Heart Show. Oh, uh, uh, 
the, the second show you're doing. Oh, is, that light up the sky. Light up the sky. I don't know why I can't remember light up the damn sky. I've only said it like six times in the last two days. Or Lutz, for sure. Lutz. Light up the sky. Light up the sky. Yeah. So, so describe the light up the sky. Now, you made the distinction between uh, projection design and video design. When, like I imagine it's a bit of a gray zone oh, in the middle, but when yes. is one clearly projection and one is clearly video design? With light up the sky, because it really is just projection, where it's a single projector hitting a, a painted drop, and it does the intros to each act. Um, it's it's a pretty involved intro, and it's set to to a score that's being written for it by Merrick Norman, and uh, but it is just projection. There's no there's no other display. There's no other there's no screens. There's no tablets. There's nothing else. It's just projection. Whereas Pygmalion is is so heavy on all the different kinds of screens and the live cameras and the different interfaces. It feels more video. Um, yeah, there seems to be a real distinction between the two. It makes sense. Okay, let's talk about architecture. So we know that you use the Adobe Suite for most of the creative work. Mm-hmm. What do you output to? Is it MPEG? What is the format? It depends on if we're doing QLab or WatchOut. Uh-huh. So it's M4V or H.264. Um, there's, so there's different codecs for each uh, control system. Right. Which one do you prefer? Like, uh, do they both run? Do they both accept uh, MIDI or mm-hmm. uh, SMPTE? Mm-hmm. Will they? Will they accept? I mean, QLab will accept DMX goes as well, will it not? Or is that not? No, I don't. I don't. Probably know, not. If you're actually, not using it, it's probably a bad idea. We haven't. We've used it. We've done MIDI show control. Yeah, there must be DMX. I try to stay away from QLab. With all due respect to Figure Fifty Three, <laughs> yes, who are a, a fantastic group of people, um, I have not had an opportunity to use DMX in QLab. Mm-hmm. Ben would know. That's okay though. But yeah. so MIDI is your go-to MIDI show control. Yeah, is your MIDI protocol. show control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you obviously prefer Watch Out. Watch Out. Yes. Yeah. I prefer Watch so Out. So describe. Is it strictly video control Watch Out, or does it do other control? Uh, watch Out has a great deal of functionality in terms of the ability to manipulate video. It's not quite a D3 or something as elaborate like that or a hippo, but you can control your color. You can control scale. You can control, you can do a lot of things that you don't have to go back into editing to deal with, which is great. So if you've made something and the director says, Oh, I'd love to see that all in blue. You can manipulate tints and, uh, the colors, the color palette until you get a blue to try. Uh, so which it's more is, like a media server. Is it? A, is that? Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 It's not a, and there are different ways and we have, we have pushed watch out pretty far um, in particular on the installation that we created, which is called the toy box. Um, we pushed watch out pretty far in terms of how you can manipulate it with, with other devices uh, and Ben did a, another show where he he also played with that, so it is and it's a timeline based program. Uh, so your media goes into a timeline, and then it's how you layer it. But there's sort of an infinite number of layers, so you can just keep stacking and blending and and working that way. And it can it deals with with um, with audio too. So 
you don't have to necessarily worry if you're doing two channels, you don't have to worry about, about dealing with audio separately. Um, it can also deal with many displays. It does blending pretty well. It does mapping fairly well. There's a, yeah. So it's, it's our, that's why it's our go to. And you would prefer, I imagine, to have a dedicated video operator for every show. Absolutely. Uh, it's not always possible. With it's rarely this, possible. It's rarely possible. So you can fire you can fire it with a with a lighting console, mm-hmm. I imagine, right? Yeah. So you can have both of them running at just one go button. Exactly. Is, yeah. Does it become when does it become a problem? It becomes a problem when there's a problem with lighting. It becomes a problem when when the operator's attention gets split. Uh, here at the Shaw Festival, they do. It is MIDI show control, and so the lighting operator is firing the video cues. But when something goes wrong on either end, they have to then deal with one of the two. <laughs> and usually, you know, so if something goes wrong with lighting, then then video gets gets left behind. And we've seen that happen live on stage in previews and shows where something went totally backwards with lighting and and they've had to forget about video is it possible to it seems to me that it'd be possible to uh, to remedy remedy that somehow by having a different cue stack like here's the lighting cue stack here's the video cue stack now sometimes you're doing double goes then you're double going yeah or you're linking cues together mm-hmm. which is fine which which happens a lot mm-hmm. um it's still then if someone has to solve a problem and uh, and they can't fire that go mm-hmm. or if something goes wrong with video and the two have been married into the lighting department and the lighting op doesn't necessarily know how to deal with a problem with video with another kind of a problem yeah i remember we're having the same discussion when mini show control first came out and we're discussing problems with uh, running rigging mm. on lighting consoles right <laughs> so you back up that cunnilingus yeah. and drops are flying and things are coming in and people are getting hit in the head so you don't want to mix you those don't want to mix right? the two. Yeah. i imagine it's the same thing with video you do not want to go back and have to requeue things is it something that um, is easily to back up like like in lighting you uh, you know, you just go back and it's fine. And I know in sound, you're like, where, where in the 30 you know, minute sound cue do you want to start? You have to back up and find that exact time point. And imagine it's the same thing with video. You're stuck with having yes. to find that. Find that exact point. Yeah. And sometimes there are things that we have that are, are looping. So if you go back to the middle point of a scene, you don't necessarily know where you are in the loop of that. And that may or may not be important um it all depends so that's where queuing things gets can get quite intricate and complicated um backing yeah going back in video is is tricky i think it's part of why the whole queue to queue world has changed a little bit in how we tech our shows because you generally have to start with the beginning of the sequence so the waterfall starts here and now we move forward yeah I certainly I, I like the trend that uh, people are getting away from doing the key to queue entirely, just doing tech runs and stopping to fix. Yeah, like that seems to be much more, much a much easier way of figuring out problems and actually fixing them the first time. Yes, rather than running and going, yeah, I think that'll work. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's Maybe not. Yeah, no, it's uh, valuable. Yeah. So it sounds like the uh, now what uh, we talked about a bit about time uh, in August as well, but it sounds like people when you're planning ahead 
to incorporate video into your show, you really do have to allow a separate video queuing session. How much can you do offline? Um, can you set up a virtual, do a virtual 3D model that you can actually model screens on and do that stuff in we, offline, or do you have to do it in space? We can. Um, it's not, it is time-consuming. If you want to do it right, you want to do a WYSIWYG way, it's really time-consuming. I do a lot of uh, doing rough 3D models in Vectorworks of the set and plopping image in just to get a sense of how it's going to interact with the set. Uh, we've worked with, you know, printing image out and putting it into a model. But even that is, you can get a sense of it until you're in the theater and you see that image at 40 feet wide by 30 feet high. You don't really know yeah. really what it's going to feel like. How do you guys work on visualizing with the director? Like, Do you bring, um, do you have them look at a computer screen and say, here's the animation or Usually, how do you yeah. fit it into the context of like a set designer could say, here's my model. Lighting designers obviously say, well, you'll see it on the day. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried, I've tried pre-visualization <laughs> with the director uh, doing renderings with WYSIWYG and they were pretty close to what it was going to look like. Uh, and the director was still like, nah, I need to be in the space. Yeah, that, yeah. that's pretty, but I need to be in the space. Yeah. So I guess it's the same thing. With being it is it. a lot of the same thing. We're able to show, like we've got stuff to show Peter right now so we can get a head start on on Pygmalion and knowing are we going down the right path? Like you still want to do a lot of that kind of checking in of here's what we think it'll look like. And now imagine if, you know, this 22-inch monitor was 40 feet wide. It takes a leap in logic uh, and imagination on the director's part. I think Ben and I are pretty good at imagining what it's going to look like. It's harder, I think, for, for directors. I know working on Ragtime, I would sit in rehearsal and show Jackie Maxwell things and get feedback, which was great because I was able to then, then when we started in the theater, we had a, a base, but it really ended up being our base template and a lot of what I created before we went into the theater um, wasn't what we saw on stage when we opened because we were able to then go oh wow it's interacting with the set really like this from this point of view and if we mix this and blend that and change that color it, be, it that was how we found what we really loved yeah. that that sounds like a, a lot like the lighting model where you really yeah. you're, you're, you set yourself up to have as many options as you can in the space and then you figure out what looks good and serves the piece in the moment. In the moment. Yeah. 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 And what kind of, uh, just to sort of start to finish off, what kind of solutions do you think uh, that directors and producers should be thinking about that video and projection can solve? Um, beyond the, we need to be on a subway platform, so we have to project <laughs> a video of a subway platform rather than hiring a scenic artist. Right. To paint it. So, uh, you know, instead of just being another, you know, hiring, instead of hiring a scenic artist, put a projection screen up. What are some, uh, some other problems that people can think about on how video and projection can solve uh, telling the uh, storytelling problems? I think one of the things. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Good question. He should be doing the interview. The He's question gonna... was what's inside a grape. <laughs> Indeed. I heard that. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, so what was that? Right. So what problems can solve. What were problems that uh, video can solve that project uh, that producers and directors are thinking about? Like, what should they be thinking that 
when should they be considering video and projection as a way of uh, solving storytelling I think when challenges? they're thinking about the set and when they're thinking about casting, I think mm-hmm. it starts at the beginning in order to integrate it more and in order to think outside the box. There's one, like our, one of our mantras is let's get away from the screen. Mm-hmm. Let's get away from the flat rectangular. And that doesn't mean just let's make a circle screen. Like it means let's get away from just being stuck to this planar surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and remember that anything that stops light will stop a projector <laughs> too right? seems pretty obvious but it's, people have to think about it right the number of times we've gotten the question well this wall is gray can we project onto it or there's a there's wallpaper on this can we project onto that and of course you can it just then alters the fidelity of your image potentially or not at all um can you project onto texture can you pro- of course you can you can project onto it onto basically anything um so in terms of the problems that it can solve, I think there are, in the way that more, or that the imaginative directors have taken scenography to an incredible level beyond flats and cut drops flying in, it's thinking about video and projection in the same way. How, how can we use it differently? How can we tell a different story with it how can we how can i flesh out the story that i want to tell with image and because we see how effective image is in film all the time and you know our lives are so visual now we're seeing stuff all the time so it's it's thinking about how to solve your problem in a different way if you do need to go from King's Cross Station to the moon and back over to Niagara Falls or wherever you need to go. There are different ways to that video can support that, not just as a scenic element. Um, there are ways to tell a story where it's not just blowing up the actor's face really big, or maybe that is the solution. Um, maybe replacing actors with filmed actors, although I, I don't think that's the, always the solution, but it is one way to solve the problem because you can transform an actor in a way on film that you can't necessarily on stage. You could put them somewhere else. Uh, it's, defi- it's getting outside the box and thinking away from the screen and thinking about it from the beginning. And not every play needs projection in the same way, not every play needs set, or not every play needs 500 lights. Some need 20, some need 1,000. Um, I think there are things, too, with the rise in fidelity of our projectors and our ability to create incredible and really striking image on stage. It's, it's a bit of a wormhole for a lot of directors, too, because you don't know how far you can go. And the language isn't necessarily there yet to communicate, I want to go this far, or I don't want to go that far, or I want, to, I want it everywhere, or I want it nowhere. Is it reasonable for people to expect to have video in the rehearsal space to figure out how it can help? I think it's very reasonable, yeah. yeah. On, on, you know, different scales for sure, but I'm about to enter into a project where we're going to need it in the rehearsal hall, and that's already been identified 
Kim Collier has, who works with video an enormous amount, um, identified that we're going to need it in the rehearsal hall, just in terms of the actors interacting with things. We're, we're going to have a live camera, things like that. I think it's really valuable and really helps integrate it. We also always forget uh, that the actor likes to know what's going on around them. And so if they know that they are interacting with ginormous flowers and that's their world in the same way when they when the purple lights get turned on, right? And they go, oh, wow, this is where I am. It adds to the level of integration and, and the level of information. I've had so many performers come to me and say, I, I was able to step outside and see what I'm in. And now I have all that information and I can take that and run with it and that's really exciting for me so is it helpful as well when you've got uh, projection I've got so many questions when you've got video on stage is it helpful to have a monitor so people can see what's going on from the front like it looks like you have a sound like fallback you have the same kind of thing so they can situate themselves correctly in relation it to it certainly can be yeah if things are really precise, it's really valuable. We've we've run into it a couple of times where it would have been great to have a monitor. Um, we sort of incorporated that into Bigger Than Jesus at one point because there were very, very precise points that Rick had to hit. Um, and one of it was just by nature of the camera having its own display. And so we used that as the foldback video monitor for him. Uh, but yeah, it can it can be very useful. Okay, so uh, I think we've covered a lot of the of the theatrical kind of traditional theatrical uh, themes that you work with. But tell us about uh, the toy box and uh, playground studios and how you developed that and why and and what kind of um, uh, what is the story it's telling. <clears throat> so we started playground studios because we felt that there was work that we wanted to do and create that was outside the work that we do as, as designers in theater. But we also wanted to give ourselves sort of this profile of this is who we are and what we do and we're a unified team. Um, and so Playground Studios right now is just Ben and myself. And um, we created a an installation called the Toy Box, which is a an interactive room for play. And its sole purpose was to bring all the tools that we love using as, as designers, so lighting and set and video, and put them in the hands of the audience and let them make their own stories and create their own pictures and make something ephemeral. There's no, we don't record it. It just is. It's there. You interact with it. You either stay for five minutes. We've had people stay for hours. And then you leave and it's a place to just come and play. And so we took our watch out systems and uh, an interactive uh, MIDI box, which is just a bunch of buttons because people love pushing buttons. There was part of that too, was the, the dramaturgy of the design of that was, do people like buttons or switches or foot triggers? And people, the cause and effect became really important. So pushing the button and something crazy happens on the screen and incorporated into that room is an enormous green screen so you are actually part of the projection as well uh, which is nothing nothing revolutionary but it is a lot of fun it's a great deal of fun That's great. 
right. And where uh, where can we find these installations? Where do you set them up, and uh, how do you decide when you're going to do them? We have been. We were just recently at Harbourfront in Toronto. We have a, an agency that represents the show, and we actually showcased it at the at IPAY, which is the International Performing Arts for Youth. They do a, a major conference every year. So we took a miniature version of it down to Philly and did a, a mini showcase of it, which is where Aaron starred. Uh, <laughs> we had no babysitter. We had a showcase at 10 o'clock at night. And so he came on stage with us. That's what you while do, right? we, You know, you just got to, he helped set up the props and we threw a green screen up on stage and did a little mini version of it. Um, it gets set up. A few times a year in different places. Uh, we, I don't think we have any. There's a bunch of bookings in the works, but there's nothing scheduled currently. Is there? Toy box? I don't think so. We might be going to Mexico with it. I don't know. That's a good deal. There's, yeah, there's so there were some nice ones that came down the pipe. <laughs> um, it's yeah, we were able to do it. It's able to. We also that was part of the design, was that. It was easy to set up and easy to tear down because we've also toured extensively and we know what a what a pain all of that is. So we can kind of go in anywhere. We did it in the rotunda of City Hall uh, in the middle of Rob Ford's reign, which was hilarious because people were totally miserable and people slowly discovered us. There's nothing quite like getting civil servants to play in the middle of their work day. Yeah. Not a happy bunch. And they came and they played uh, and a word sort of spread. So people would come on their lunch breaks to play. So we've been in some pretty, pretty odd places. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, I just want to wrap up with talking about um, people who are thinking about going into video, uh, video or project, projection careers uh, who are currently in theater or uh, other allied professions. Um, what do you think that the training programs should be focusing on? Uh, it, I imagine it's a combination between the art and the technology, just like most design work, right? Mm, yeah. What do you think they should be considering including in their programs? The, the, the art, the marriage of art and technology is exactly where it lies um, because it is, as we keep calling it a technical art form. I think having an extensive visual knowledge, so art history and film history and all of that stuff only helps to to serve the work that you're doing. Um, they need to teach After Effects. They need to teach Photoshop. They need to teach film editing. They need to teach how you use a camera, um, how to record sound in a half-decent way, because uh, if it isn't good going in, it's not good going out. And... Um, uh, so different ways to use your camera. camera, 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 how to take a picture, how to film stuff, how to use a tripod, how to edit that footage. Um, so basically they need to teach the Adobe suite. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, it sounds like it'd be a good collaboration between film and theater departments, which are, I mean, unless they're in the same department, are generally at odds with they each are. other. Right? They are, and it really should be a marriage of the two because there, there are things for both departments to learn from each other as well. Film students often get a little more of a leg up on the technical side of things that way. Theater departments often have antiquated 
computers and and you know a theater department should have a render farm we just bought our own <laughs> render farm basically this week delivered to niagara on the lake um but it's uh, the theater departments are overly often so woefully equipped on the computer end just because it's expensive and it's ever shifting territory um and then the control systems you should be coming out of school learning how to how to control your video i think that the training institutions also need to teach all of this to the directing students to the technical directing students like this needs to be part of the what they the knowledge base that they come out with a director student friend of ours leora morris who's currently doing her degree in yale they learn all of that they learn video design they learn lighting design so as directors they come out and they're able to communicate about it that's interesting i wonder it doesn't it strikes me that i don't think i know any directors who've gone to the usually it's an mfa program in in, uh, in canada that they've actually discussed that they want to work with designers but they haven't actually done their own um yeah. design courses that's so valuable yeah so valuable because it's all a discussion, right? And 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 we've had those discussions with directors where we're like, are you insane? Like, that's not possible. You're talking about 500 extras. You're talking about a crane shot. You're talking about something that we c- isn't actually possible on Earth. Or you're talking about Pixar. You're ta- like, so to, which is all fine. Like, it's great to blue sky and dream. But there's the reality of what we're all capable of doing too. And just that sort of, if we can all meet on the same, on a similar level or a common level, the common bit of knowledge. Uh, I think it's it's complex to teach in school because there are so many components. But like lighting, you know, if you know you know the difference between a you know a twenty six degree and a, a fifty degree, learning those basics too is is incredibly important, and that's that is starting to happen. Yeah. Ben, do you want to All right. chime in? Nope. He doesn't want to talk to me. Ben doesn't want to talk to... That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, why don't we leave it there then? I think that's a great, sure. a, a great start. Um, good luck with stuff at the show. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here in uh, Niagara on the Lake. Oh, I'm glad we could host you on our sunlit patio. Perfect. And that was designer Beth Cates with special guest Aaron and Ben Chason speaking to me from the Shaw Festival in the summer of 2016. Next time, director Ron Jenkins, an old friend, and I have a chat about the relationships between directors and designers. And uh, make sure to join us live again on The Bellows in April, and you can check out The Bellows on Facebook for that date. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to convince the head of the drama department to buy you a render farm. Good luck with that. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.